Hi, I'm Michael Morris. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the Christian Fundamentals Discipleship course. Living for Christ is a choice that we have the privilege of making every day. The Bible is brimming with life-giving truths and rich promises from God. It tells us what He is like and sheds light on His plans and purposes for our lives. The better we understand, embrace, and apply these truths, the richer our personal relationship with Him will be. You will have noticed in the notes that I sent you, they're a little bit longer than usual. I actually have quite a lot to say on the subject, as I actually do on most things, really. But on this particular subject, uh, uh, the notes are 10 pages long. We're going to take it over two weeks. And tonight I want to do some, I want to build a sort of a conceptual foundation of an understanding of what church is, what the origins are, what Jesus meant when he said, I'm going to build my church. That's really what I want us to grasp and understand tonight. From that, next week, we'll learn about the nuts and bolts of how church works. We'll look at, you know, communion, kinonia, the Greek word. And from there, we go on to the authority of the believer. In other words, the role and function of how church is meant to work. And I'll ask again, if you have a, a camera and you're able to put it on, share your beautiful face because it's nice to look at people and actually speak to people uh, rather than just gray blocks. So. The purpose of this lesson, the first little bit, we kind of kind of read through the notes because there's not a heck of a lot more to say than what is in uh, in in the book. But the reason I felt that this lesson was so important is because when when people say the word church, there's a lot of misconceptions that we have that we've grown up with, with the word, with the meaning of the word, what it, you know, how we live out, how we go to church and all these kinds of things. So I really want to clarify what this concept of church is really all about. And it's really quite a liberating thing. It's a really exciting thing to be a part of. An incorrect understanding of what church is, is what leads to great division within the body of Christ. The body of Christ is, is hugely divided. Uh, the main the main one line down the middle, you've got Catholicism versus uh, the Protestant movements. Then you've got the various, what we now call denominational church movements. You've got the Anglicans and the Presbyterians and the Methodists and so on, the Congregationals and, and so on and so forth. Then you have your Pentecostals and your Charismatics, and they believe this and the other ones believe that. And yet we're all reading from the same Bible. And what we've allowed over the years, through the years, is misunderstandings and disagreements over minor things to cause great and major rifts. And that's obviously not Jesus' plan. The Bible tells us that Jesus will be coming back for a pure and spotless bride. One bride, one church, not many brides. Jesus is not a polygamist. He's coming back for one church. And yes, we have different expressions. We have different uh, variations of doing things, different preferences. But at the end of the day, we need to understand when we understand what church is, those differences become largely insignificant. And I can walk. One of my greatest joys over the past year, few years, I have developed wonderful relationships with many, not all, but many of the pastors within the Pinelands community. I was flabbergasted one day during a prayer meeting when the Holy Spirit moved and it was just a wonderful atmosphere. We were in worship and there was just, the Holy Spirit's presence just came into the room. It was so thick and I opened my eyes to see an Anglican minister praying in tongues. And just when I thought I couldn't believe that, I saw a Presbyterian minister praying in tongues, a congregational minister. I expected the vineyard guys and the charismatic oaks to be doing this kind of thing. But I suddenly realized 
I was in a place where, oh, and a Baptist guy was praying in tongues. Fred, a Baptist guy. Yo, <laughs> amazing. And it was beautiful how all of these men, despite some of the congregational limitations that they faced in terms of doctrine and theology, we had a wonderful unity in the spirit. And our relationships have grown in this great respect, despite our differences. And I'm, I'm really excited for what God is going to do within the church in Pinelands, because when leaders come together and churches come together in unity, that's where God commands his blessing. So the purpose of this lesson really is to gain an accurate understanding of what church is, as well as its role within society and the world. So the foundational scripture is Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18. And this is Jesus having a conversation with his disciples. When he came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I am, that I, the son of man, am? So if you like to bring this into our modern context, it's like, what is Facebook saying about me? What is trending about me on Twitter? What are those out there who are seeing the miracles and, and, and hearing all of this stuff? What's, what's their take on, on what's going on here? And the disciples replied, some say that you are John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, they, they referred back to a prophetic voice because they recognized Jesus' prophetic voice. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And he asked a very personal and a very pointed question. And at the end of the day, the entire summation of our faith and what we believe and how we live out our life in relation to God is determined by this one question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Was he just some prophet? Is he the Messiah, the son of God? Did he die and rise again from the dead? Do you believe that? If that is who he is to you, then he, everything he says about himself becomes true and real and experiential in our lives. So Jesus asks this question, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the prophesied one. Please let's understand. I'm going to jump into this a little bit just now. The Jewish mentality over years and years and years, the prophesied Messiah, the one who was going to come and liberate God's people from all oppression. Peter says, you are him. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, you had a revelation that didn't just come from your natural mind. God gave you that revelation. And then Jesus says, and I say to you, Pete, that you are Peter. In other words, Peter means rock. And he says, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It is it is wrong to think that Jesus is talking about Peter there being this. He calls him rock, but Peter is not the rock on which Jesus builds his church. Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. But the revelation that Jesus is the Christ is the thing, is the attribute upon which Jesus will build his church. In other words, the very foundation, the very, to, be, to, 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 to understand church, to come into church, we need to have an understanding that church begins with a revelation that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And that's the foundation. We also see that the gates or the power and authority of Hades will not be able to prevail against this revelation. That's powerful. 
And like I said, we'll discuss that later on, even in this course, but also in the next course. And then finally, from this point, we need to unpack what Jesus meant when he said that he would build his church. He said, I will build my church. And understanding this is awesome because I think it's going to really help you see and understand church in a whole new way. Let's start by defining what church is not. It is not a building. It is not a place. It is not a worship service. And nor is it a religious observation. Now, I still use the language, I'm going to church. In other words, I'm going to the building because that's how the English language has kind of programmed us to, it, it works, okay? However, it's like if I say to you, I'm going to worship, you think I'm going to sing a song. It could very well be, but there are many other things I could do to worship. But church itself is not a what, it's a who. I'll say that again, church is not a what, not a thing or an organization or a building or a structure. It is a who. When Jesus introduced the concept of church, he used the word ecclesia. He said, I will build my ecclesia. It's a Greek word, but we need to understand the significance of this word. Ecclesia was not a new concept to the people he was speaking to. Jesus used a term that was, of, that was such an integral part of everyday life at the time that all hearing it would understand exactly what he meant and what the implications would be. Now, so this is very interesting. It's not a Christian term or a Jewish term. It's a Greek term, which was later adopted by the Romans, but everyone understood what it meant. Now, the etymology or the, the understanding of the origins and the meaning of words, that's what etymology is, of the word ecclesia, we see that it's made up of two segments. The first one, which means ek, which is a, prop, a preposition meaning out of, and kalio, which is a verb meaning to call. So ecclesia can therefore be defined as the called out ones and a summoned assembly for governmental or decision-making reasons. So let's pause for a moment. Was it last week that we did sanctification? Yes, it was. And we spoke about the principle of being called out to, being set apart from, but to, apart from the world, apart from our old life and our flesh, to God, devoted to God. And so this word ecclesia that Jesus is using, he says, I will build my body of called out ones who are summoned and they will assemble and they will gather together and they will unite for governmental and decision-making reasons. Let, let's just get a little bit into the, um, the understanding. There's a, a quote here by Ed Silvoso. It comes out of his book, Rediscovering God's Instrument for Global Transformation is talking about the church. And he says this, the ecclesia was not religious at all since it was first developed as a ruling assembly of citizens in the Grecian democracy to govern its city-states. So we need to understand that this word government is a big part of what the church is. It consisted of men 18 years or older who had done two years of military service. In essence, people substantially committed to their city-state. In a broader sense, ecclesia came to mean an assembly of citizens duly convened. When the more hierarchical Romans replaced the Greeks in the imperial scene, the Romans assimilated the concept. So they took this from the Greeks, this concept of those who are called out to rule or to govern. Consequently, the general public in Jesus' day understood ecclesia to mean both secular institution and government system it represented. Secular institution, that which is established for governing purposes, 
we recognize the role and the function and the you know and the, of those people as well as the government system it represented so it represented something higher those who were chosen from among the people to represent the government and to 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 have to govern the affairs of a city or a region so it's clear to see that when jesus says i am going to build my ecclesia he had a lot more in mind than a sunday morning meeting <laughs> christ was establishing his kingdom government on the earth in order to express his victory rule and reign through his people now i have on my mind because we don't I, i'm not because we're cutting this lesson in half i want to give you a little bit of a a bonus if you like free add-on extra value uh that i'm not going to charge you for it's not in your notes but i want to spend a little bit of time five maybe ten minutes i want to give you a little bit more history and a little bit more understanding of the hebrew mindset of what they expected when jesus was going to come and when he says that i'm going to build my ecclesia we need to understand that the greatest resistance to Jesus' message the greatest resistance to what Jesus wanted to, wanted to establish as his body or his church was the expectations of the Jewish people. Jesus preached the message of the kingdom of God. Now, our last lesson in this entire course is called Kingdom Focus. And that's where I really unpack an understanding of kingdom theology in a very, very basic way. Um, we talk about the authority of the believer in the next lesson also has to do with the same thing. But when we talk about the kingdom of God, Jesus taught a lot on the kingdom. And the reason he had to teach so much is because the Jews had misguided expectations. I want to read you a scripture from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And I'm going to go through this quite quickly. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? For we have seen the star in the east and have come to worship him. So we know the story here. This is the wise guys. Herod, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one, would be born. So King Herod here, the current king of, of uh, the current king over the region, felt threatened by this potential new king that was born, this prophesied king. And the prophesied king from Old Testament times was going to be the son of David. In other words, of the lineage of David. And that's significant. The fact that Jesus is called the son of David points back to a time. It's a point of reference that the Jewish people look to again and again and again. And in the New Testament, the two blind men, Matthew 9, 27, they call him the son of David. The woman of Canaan, Matthew 15, 22, again, calling the son of David. To blind men at Jericho, Matthew 20, 30, there as well. When Jesus healed the demon-possessed man who was both blind and mute, all the multitudes were amazed and asked, could this be the son of David? Matthew 12, 22 to 23. And again, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the, donk on, the, on the donkey, they shouted out, Hosanna, the son of David, Matthew 21, verse 9. Why is this significant? David was the liberator of Israel. David is the one who liberated Israel from all of their enemies, who brought Israel to a place where there was peace on all sides. And he built and established the temple, which was the presence of God once again in the midst of the people. And they, they were at peace. So what was the expectation? At the time of Jesus, we must remember that 
The Jews were under Roman occupation. They were captives in their own land. Many of you might have heard the name of N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, as is also often known. And he writes on, 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 this, on the area and the sphere, and he says, the salvation spoken of in Jewish sources of this period has to do with rescue from national enemies, restoration of national symbols, and a state of shalom, in other words, peace and wholeness, in which every man will sit under his vine or fig tree. Again, a significant statement. I know we're doing a bit Bible study here, but this is really interesting stuff. This phrase is really significant because, again, it points back to a time. After the rule of David, when, if, when peace was established in the kingdom, David's reign finally was passed down to his son Solomon. And under his reign, Israel saw had never seen better times. 1 Kings 4 verse 24 and 25 describes it. It says, for he had dominion over all the region and on, on this side of the river from Tipsah even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. And he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. In other words, there was peace on every side. Every man had his piece of land. He had his own fig tree. He had his own. Truth be told, it sounds a heck of a lot more like Cyprus than Israel. But since they're so close, I'm sure there's some connection. Every man has his own fig tree, his own vine. He's dependent on no one. He's not all fighting any wars. So the expectation of this coming Messiah is that he would again restore Israel to this state. Micah chapter 4. You can read verse 1 to 5, but I'm going to read to you verse 4. Micah is prophesying of when Jesus will come. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 4, Micah 4, 4, But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of the hosts has spoken. Verse 5, For all people walk in, in the name of, of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. They were looking for another national liberator. They were looking for Jesus to come and be the Messiah who would overcome Rome, who would topple the throne of, 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 fear, of um, uh, Caesar and would bring down the domination that was on them. So Jesus comes. He, we know in John 6, he feeds the 5,000. And after he feeds the 5,000, they began to ask, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And, and, and they had this idea that Jesus was going to come and restore Israel uh, to, to, fr from physical oppression of the Romans. I'm going to pause there on that, on that point. Why do I say that this is so important? The greatest hindrance to the, to the Jewish people was their expectation that Jesus was going to be a national liberator. They were fiercely nationalistic and didn't care for much of anybody else. When Jesus came, there's so many parables about how he came to his own. The wedding feast, the, the master sends his servants out to invite people to the wedding feast and they turn him away. And again, he sends them out. And this time they beat up and kill his servants. So then he sends out his servants again to go to the highways and byways, to those who are not of the family, to those who are not, and invite them all to come to the wonderful wedding feast. That's Matthew 22. So Jesus is putting out this idea that I am going to build my government, my new structure, 
not on the systems of this world, not in a worldly government format, not in a military power, not an economic power, but on a revelation of the, that I am the Christ. A deep internal revelation so that the rulership of Jesus' kingdom would not be an external leadership that is opposed upon people, but it will be a kingdom and a rulership that is from the inside out, where Jesus will rule and reign in our hearts and in so doing transform very subversively the entire world. If you think of the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, there they are and tongues of fire come down and then a little while later because of all of this there's huge oppression when you get to about acts 5 uh, oppression starts hitting the church and they scatter and this message of christianity subversively under the radar because it's not some top-down government has changed the world it has changed the entire world let's get back to our notes now 4.1, the real significance of why Jesus used the term ecclesia to describe his church can be more fully grasped when we understand a formal Roman association with conventus uh, civium Romanorum, or just conventus for short. Listen to this. When a group of Roman citizens, as small as two or three, gathered anywhere in the world, it constituted a conventus as the local expression of Rome. Even though geographically separated them, geography separated them from the capital of the empire and the emperor, their coming together as fellow citizens automatically brought the power and presence of Rome into their midst. How incredible is that? So whenever they gathered, it was a representation of where they came from, a recognition and a representation of the authority of Caesar in their midst and of his lordship. He was like a god at the time. Once we understand the concept around this, these words and what Jesus was speaking of, it gives us an entirely new perspective when we read Matthew 18, 20, where Jesus says, for where two or more are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Wow. The entire kingdom of God, heaven's forces, Jesus himself, as if we were in his presence, because his presence is there, is represented. All his power, all his authority, his name, there, with us, as we gather. That conventus. Jesus is trying to teach us that whenever we gather together in his name, that the power and the presence or the authority of heaven are available and in operation in our midst. And this is why Jesus taught us to pray. Let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come, your rulership, your reign here on earth as it is in heaven. Folks, we're talking about divine colonization, for lack of a better word. That's exactly what the Romans did. Wherever they went, they made things to look like Rome, to feel like Rome, to, to, to the, the same kind of architecture, the same governing and authority structures. The Roman way of life overtook the world. They colonized everywhere that they went. And here is what Jesus is saying. Pray that prayer that the expression of heaven will come into every place where you are. The expression of my rule and reign, of my love, of my victory, will come into the world through you, my ecclesia, my called out ones. That you will live 
from a new kingdom source that is not of this world, that is not subject to this world, and bring about change wherever you go. What Christ had in mind when he was talking about his ecclesia was a relational and governmental body. I want to say that again, a relational body. The ecclesia is not just a structural thing. It has structure because there are there are uh, offices of authority within it. There are levels of authority within it. So it does have structure. But that structure is the re result of relationship and not the other way around. And that's, that those relationships are the means through which government is worked out. You see, government in the kingdom is not just autocratic and authoritarian. It is always relational. And it's founded upon the truth of, of the lordship of Jesus and his divinity, commissioned to bring the ethos and the power of the kingdom of God into earth to reclaim that which was lost to sin. The earth, the, sorry, the church is called and empowered to be God's instrument for global transformation as we continue the work and ministry that Christ started on earth as his representatives with his life and his love living within our hearts. Second Corinthians 5, 18 to 20 says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What does ministry mean? The word ministry simply means service. To minister to somebody means to serve them. And so God has given us the service of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This word ambassador is a, is a big word. It's a loaded word. It carries with a great meaning. Now, if you think, for example, of the United Nations, where all the ambassadors of the various countries gather, those ambassadors are not there to represent their own interests or their own ideas. They are there to represent the interests of the kingdoms or the nations that have sent them to represent the values, the ethos and the name of, that, of those places. So here in this verse, God is saying that we as the church, he's called out ones separated from the world, dedicated to him, are to be the conduits or the ambassadors through which God's kingdom is demonstrated by the stands that we make and the way that we treat those around us and where the interests of the kingdom of God are advanced and furthered. <coughs> so an ambassador doesn't live for himself. He doesn't live for his own interests. He's there for the furtherance of the interests of his Lord or his country. Point number five, Christ is the head of his church. Christ himself is both the founder and the sustainer of the church. Ephesians 1, to 23 says this, and he put all things, this is God, when he exalted Jesus to the highest place, he says he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. I want you to get that. God gave Jesus all authority over all things to the church. Jesus Christ is a gift that is given to you and me. God has given Jesus. He's given his son to the church because he is the head over all things. 
and through him and by him, we walk in that same love and authority, that same position, because the church is his body, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. The ecclesia is the body of Christ. Now, any body that is any any body that is separated from its head ceases to exist. It doesn't exist. It's a dead body. No body that is that has a severed head can live. I know you can cut off a chicken's head and it'll run around for a little bit, but it's just biding time. A few minutes and it's dead. And likewise, you know, <laughs> in our Christian walk, we can get cut off from the head sometimes. And, you know, we run around doing our Christian things, but uh, we're not connected. No, Christ is the head of his body. And when the body is rightly connected to the head, where the body goes, the head goes. Think about that. With two or more gathered together in his name, there his presence and his kingdom manifestation and representation is. Wherever you go, whether with people or alone, you are an ambassador, part of the body of Christ, which means you are connected, vitally connected to the head. And everything that comes from the head, you have access to. Colossians 1.18, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So is so he is first in everything. Now, in the same way that your physical body is governed by the head, so too the body of Christ operates. It's a really good analogy. And there are different roles and different functions and different responsibilities for the various parts of your body. So within the church. And we're going to actually look at this for the next the next little while. Because God has a lot to say about his ecclesia and how it will work and how it will operate. So we need to understand, just, just to recap on some of the points I've made thus far. The kingdom that Jesus was going to usher in, his ecclesia, his ones that are called out to rule and govern, were not going to rule and govern from the top down over people. But they were going to be ruled and governed from within so that they could rule and govern their own lives as well as put it in structures of authority so that governance and rulership could be exercised within the body of Christ, so that there's accountability, there's growth, there's those who are responsible for certain roles within the body. Jesus then talks about the body, that he is the head of the body, and that every one of us make up members of the body. And folks, there is not one part of our body that is insignificant. The moment you consider a part of your body that might be insignificant, surplus to requirements, you might think, your little toe, do I really need that? Well, I ask you, if you didn't have a little toe, how would you find furniture in the middle of the night? You wouldn't. <laughs> That's why you need your little toe. Every part has a purpose. Let's look at this. Let's talk about alignment or spiritual alignment, my place in the body. And actually, I'm going to start this from a different place. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles and turn to the book of Psalms. And we're going to go to Psalm 133. It's a beautiful psalm. And it says this. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So in other words, for the ecclesia, the, the body of Christ, to be together and dwell in unity. He says, behold, look, see, because there's something you can notice there. It's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. There the Lord commands his blessing, life forevermore. So he's talking about the state of the church here. 
in unity. And what I want, the analogy I want you to understand here is Aaron, when the oil lands on his head, it drips down his beard and down onto his garments because everything is in alignment. You know, if he had to have his arms out and his feet out, that oil would not, would not get there. And the, the oil here represents the presence of God, the spirit of God. As we align ourselves within the structures, within the body that God has, has, has given us, as we find our unique place, we get everything that we need. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 to 18, talks about this unity in diversity. You see, unity in the body of Christ is not, in the body of Christ is not uniformity. There is a big mistake that we have made within the body of Christ. Many people will say, if you want to be part of this body, you have to believe exactly like this. You have to look like this. This is how we sing. This is how we do things. That's how it must be done. That's uniformity. It means everybody must be the same. But just look at your screen right now. Everybody is different. We're in different colors, different cultures, different countries. We are not uniform. The moment I start putting in uniformity, I say everybody has to look like me, speak like me, and think like me, and then I do a great disservice to the body of Christ. No, unity within the body of Christ is, is not uniformity, but it's unity and appreciation of all the differences that we have. Not uniform. There was a word I used early on, and I've lost it again. It's unity through diversity. We have great diversity among us. And that's a wonderful thing because culturally today, there are things in your culture that are foreign to me, but that are beautiful and that are powerful and are an asset to my life. Likewise, there are things in my culture that will bless you and your life. We are different, but there's something beautiful in each of us. And God has a role for each and every one of us to play. 1 Corinthians starts, it talks about this, 1 Corinthians 12. And we're going to read a bit about that now. For as the body is one, look how many times the word one comes up, by the way. As the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, all have been made to drink of one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not a part of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? And if the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set member, the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. God, it's, it's like thinking about, well, let me, let me put you, the word sets donates deliberate placement. When I was a child, one of my jobs, one of the chores I had to do is I had to set the table for supper. And I was taught the right way to set the table. Forks go on the left, knives go on the right, dessert spoons go on the top, side plate on the left, serviette on top of the side. I had a set way that it was done. You go to a fancy gathering and you're going to have many courses. You're going to see the table set perfectly. To have something set means that I haven't just put the plates on the table and all the knives and forks on the table together. It's not random. It's specific. This verse says that God sets the members. In other words, it's very specific. 
each one of them. In other words, nobody is overlooked. Nobody is forgotten. God has your number. He knows your name. And he's got the perfect place that he wants to position you in the body. My heart would be no good in place of my nose. And my nose would be no good at pumping blood around my body. But my nose has the ability, it's got olfactory glands that can pick up scent. And so it's positioned perfectly on my face for the task and function that it has. Without it, I would not be able to smell. Without my heart, I wouldn't be able to pump blood around my liver complant. You understand the point. Each task, each, each member of my body has a specific function and it's got its perfect place for that function. And I really believe with all my heart, according to the scripture, that God sets and aligns his people in spiritual families. Psalm 68 verse 6a says, God sets, there you have the word again, sets the solitary into families. Now, God doesn't use the same criteria that you and I do to choose our spiritual family or to determine where we should be spiritually aligned. When I talk about spiritually, uh, spiritual alignment, I talk about vital relational connections within the body of Christ, not structural. I don't care if you're Methodist. You move, you know, who is it that God has called you to be? I don't care what, what religion you are, what, what denomination you are. Who is it that God has set you to? You see, we choose church based on the fact that I've got kids. What's their children's ministry like? I like the worship at that place, or I don't like the worship there, or What's their prayer ministry like? And we, we shop for churches like we shop for clothing. These are my preferences. This is what I like. This is what I don't like. And whenever we come across something that makes us uncomfortable or, you know, makes us feel like, oh, more is demanded of me than I'd perhaps like, or, you know, this, this is not my style, then we move on. We go and find somewhere else. Folks, that's not how God works. God doesn't use those criteria. 6.1, 2.1 says, God aligns you with people who have a divine vision, who have a vision or a mission or a purpose from God and will help you discover your gifts and your talents. They will teach you. They will equip you. They will empower you. They will create room for you to grow and to express and exercise your gifts within the context of their vision. We're going to talk a little bit about, about we're going to talk about that a bit more next week. But I want you to understand that God has a person in mind for you that he wants to connect you to who has what you need to accomplish your calling and your vision and purpose in life. You need what he's got. My relationship with Pastor Andreas is a really good example because it's, he, needed, he needed a Michael. He needed somebody who was practical and who was organizational. I needed somebody who could speak into my life and raise me up spiritually. Take me by the ear and sort me out because I had a double life and I needed to sort a whole lot of things out. Now, God, God connected me with him and I praise God. He helped me recognize the significance of that connection. And I've seen many people come through, recognize the, 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 uh, the importance of connections and, uh, and allow God to do through those relationships a wonderful work of growth and of maturation. Megan, will you put your camera on again? Can you there, Megan? Megan is my spiritual daughter. I am incredibly proud of that young woman. She, God has used my way of thinking, my uh, 
way of prioritizing so many of the things that I've learned through Pastor Andreas, he has used me in her life to establish, to help her establish routines and systems in her life, make tough decisions. I mean, Megan's journey over the past three, four years has been one of deliverance, one of growth, one of blessing and maturation. I am so incredibly proud of that young woman sitting there. I have seen her come out of the bonds of manipulation and break them. I have seen her grow in faith. I have seen her being from an up, down, in and out, high, low, to a woman of stability, a woman of character. And yes, she still has a room to grow. She still has a way to go, as do we all. But my goodness, I look at the work that God has done in her. And I'm so proud of her. I'm so blessed. Now, I don't take credit for that. I don't say it's because of me that Megan has now got this. And it's all my gifts. And I don't, that's not the boasting. The boasting is that God brought us together in a beautiful relationship of love where Megan knows that she is loved unconditionally, where Megan has shared her heart, her the good, the bad, and the ugly, where she's been loved through it all. And through this relationship, through somebody who's older than her, somebody who's walked the journey a little bit longer, somebody who has a measure of spiritual wisdom, imparting that to her, she has grown. She has taken on that heart. She has captured that heart, and she's living it out for herself. And now is leading in other people as well and sharing her heart with other people as well. It's a beautiful story. And I'm incredibly proud of her because that takes great humility. It takes great meekness. It takes the ability and it's necessary for you to say, I am going to submit myself and my life to this person to speak into my life, to bring correction, to tell me things I might not want to hear. But I know that I'm loved. He's doing it because he loves me and he's going to point me in the right direction. Now, let's get back to our notes. Every family from God, in other words, every spiritual family has a unique calling and a grace from God. We're not all called to do the same thing. By joining a family, you become a recipient of the grace. In other words, the divine enablement as well as that is on that family. And you become a contributor to the vision and the mission that they espouse. So as we give our time, our energy, our giftings, our resources to meaningfully help our spiritual family achieve their God-given mandate, we become partakers of the blessing of that family, and we're empowered through the gifts and talents of those around us. Our lives gain a higher level of purpose. In other words, we're, we get to be partakers in something that is far bigger than just ourselves. It's not just about me and my family, and how can I make a good living and have a nice house and enjoy a nice life. I become part of something that is way bigger than just me. I become part of a kingdom movement, and I'm part of a family, and I'm not alone. Romans 12, again, uses a similar analogy from verses 4 to 8. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. You belong to me and I belong to you. In other words, I have a measure of accountability to you and you have a measure of accountability to me as we walk this out together. I need to be focused on your well-being. And you need to be focused on my well-being. In this grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. If your gift, sorry, uh, if God, so if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, Give generously. 
If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. In other words, he's acknowledging here, Paul, that every one of us is made differently. Not everybody's called to be a pastor. Not everybody's called to sing in the worship team. There are some people I know are called not to sing publicly. Alignment within the body of Christ. As we find our place, as we begin to use our gifts, we grow in those gifts. We grow in discernment. Let me give you an example. When you discover that, that you are able to hear God's voice and you, you have unctions that you believe God is saying this, the gift of prophecy, you don't just go and stand on the stage and make prophecies over nations and over churches and over families. In your context, you're given some room and you learn to use that gift. You know, I have the gift of music, but I often make mistakes. I often get notes wrong, especially in the beginning. And when God puts us in a family, he puts us amongst people who can recognize our gifts and give us room in which we can begin to use those gifts and receive correction and guidance along the way so that the gift doesn't come perverted, become perverted. Alignment, 6.3, alignment with the spiritual body is, again, as I'm going to say it again, relational, not organizational. Just looking for a note and I, that I haven't made. All right, let's carry on. This means that the poignant question is not which church should I go to, but rather who is it that God is connecting me to? Who is it that God wants me to serve? Listen, Jesus said that his church was going to be built on a revelation of who he is and our relationship with him. Everything else in the body of Christ functions on the same foundation, not structure relationship it's not about what church you go to it is who who is the person that god has connected you to to serve and to be a blessing to and also to come under and submit to so that they can have a measure of they can have a measure of authority in your life so that they can have freedom to speak the word of god into your life to bring correction as and when you need it to bring encouragement and guidance and coaching who is the one that God has connected you to? Not where has God placed me? Through discovering the answers to these questions, God is able to work through deep, meaningful relationships to bring about growth, maturity, purpose, and mutual blessing within his body. I know of many people who've been so hurt in church because when they've come in vulnerability and, and revealed their stuff, they've been rejected and they've been pushed away because they no longer fit in the structure, you first have to sort that out before you can be part of the structure. That is not what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. Jesus Christ's church says, I love you. I see you. God loves you. And I, I don't ignore all of the stuff, but you are valuable in God's eyes and you have wonderful gifts and talents. Now, in this relationship of love and acceptance, let's work through those other things together. I'm going to equip you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you the word of God. I'm going to teach you how to hear his voice. I'm going to teach you how to pray, lay hold of authority and, and exercise that authority so that you can overcome those things. I'm going to set principles in place in your life so that you become financially independent, that you're not relying on your mommy or your daddy or anybody else anymore, but you learn to use the principles of God's finances and stewardship. I mean, I, one of the first things Pastor Andreas did for me is, Michael, how much do you earn? I thought that's a bit rude. It's a bit of a personal question, don't you think? But I was still young, so I told him, he said, okay, and how much are you saving a month? I don't really know. You earn that, and you, 
you don't, you don't know, where's your money going? I'm not sure. I don't, you know, uh, this and that. Michael, from next month, every month, you're going to deposit a thousand rand into a savings account and you're going to send me the EFT confirmation. Don't make me ask you for it. And once or twice, he used to say, Michael, where's your, where's your save? Ah, I did, I did save. I did save faster. He wasn't dead then. I did save. Well, the truth is, little did either of us know that that money would pay for the engagement ring I bought for his daughter many years later. But nonetheless, he started putting principles in my life that I needed. I needed somebody to do that for me. No denomination will do that for you. No leadership structure will do that for you. But a person who loves you, who God has put an affection in his heart for you, who sees the best in you, who, who sees your spiritual destiny and is willing to speak into that and coach you and give you the tools, life skills, the practical things that you need to become more like Christ. That's the person that will cause you to grow and mature in the Lord. Folks, this is about relationship and finding those relationships is vital. It's the key thing. It's so, so important. We're going to end on, on this last little section. Right alignment within the body of Christ is vital for growth, influence, and accountability. Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 16 says this, And he himself, speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect or a whole or a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now listen to me. God, Jesus gave us the gift. Gifts are not people with the gift of an apostle. I have the gift of a prophet. No, these people themselves are the gift. They function in an apostolic or a prophetic or an evangelistic or a teaching or a pastoral role. They are gifts to the body. God gives us these men as a gift so that we can become mature, so that we can grow up, so that we can be edified and come into the unity of the faith until together as the church, not an individual, but together as a body, we come to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. None of us can come to that place alone. We need the body. As the body, we come. We can, we can come to that place. That we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, and by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him, Jesus, who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, there we have it again, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That is one long sentence. That is one big mouthful. In essence, here's what it's saying. God has given us people that are gifted and anointed by God. They carry something within him, a measure of spiritual gifting and spiritual authority to be a gift to the church so that as we all, as we grow and mature in submission to them and help, and they help us to grow and mature, we find our gifts. And as we exercise them, we, we become a blessing to the rest of the body of Christ. And so the body of Christ is edified or charged or blessed 
and it grows and it's this beautiful not organization but rather organism if you like living breathing thing it's vital to understand that being a member of the body of christ means that we are positioned to be discipled trained and equipped for the works of ministry this is a discipleship course the purpose of discipleship is to be dis trained and equipped the responsibility for ministry as we see in this portion of scripture does not fall primarily primarily on those who are employed at the church but rather each and every member remember ministry is service service serving one another with our gifts every single one of us is called to do that we have different places different ways different roles in doing that but everyone has a responsibility to do it nonetheless god has appointed elders as overseers within the body for the purpose of nurturing protecting and equipping the church finally the church is therefore a family of people because we're all related we're all sons and daughters of god we are united in his love and purpose through jesus christ authorized and empowered and commissioned to co-labor with him in releasing his kingdom rule and reign within the earth you see the church is not a building the church is not a meeting the church is the sons and daughters of god who carry within them the authority and the life of jesus christ who are sent out into this world to be loved not only to one another in unity but to the entire world and show them what jesus is like the gates of hades in other words what are gates designed to do gates are designed to protect and keep out the bible says that the gates or the the strongholds of the enemy cannot withstand the revelation of jesus christ nor can it withstand those who carry this revelation deep within them and walk in that authority folks the church is not about structures it's not about sunday meetings it's not about denominations i understand denominations came around to to provide structure and by the way i'm not i'm not we're part of a denomination every time you become part of a body we just call ourselves a modern denomination we doesn't matter we become parts of groups of things i understand the need for structure but church itself is not struct it's not just the structure it's not just that we go to a building and connect with things for self-help that i go on this course and then i become better and i don't build any intimate relationships with anybody because i don't really want anybody to see me folks True Christianity is not just being vulnerable with Jesus and vulnerable with God. It's about being vulnerable with each other, being open, being honest, being real and walking together so that we can so that my weaknesses can be strengthened by somebody else. Pastor Andreas is really weak when it comes to working with his hands, when it comes to practical things. He needs somebody like me. I am not as strong as he is in his consistency in prayer or in the prophetic gift. He's got an incredible prophetic gift which in turn has served me and helped me and guided me so many times during my life. Various gifts coming together through wonderful relationship, edifying, strengthening, and encouraging one another. Folks, that is what the church is all about. Relationships. Relationship with Jesus, relationships with one another that lead to us serving one another, loving one another, blessing one another, and growing together in Christ-likeness. It's not some external thing that is put on people it is an internal way of life in which we submit to god and submit to one another through love in a spirit of meekness and kindness
Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.